You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the, su- as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Pilate, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, we will hold fast to the anchor. We want to hold fast to the anchor. But we realize that the strength of the anchor on it is on its own. It's not our strength of our hold. The anchor goes deep. The anchor holds because the anchor is weighty. The anchor holds and it really holds on to us tighter than we hold on to it. It's our strength. It's our endurance. It's our perseverance. And it carries us or it sustains us or it holds us during every of life's situations, whether it's temptation, whether it's grief or trial, whether it's loss, even in the face of death, Father, we have an anchor, one that will hold us fast to the other side. And Father, like the apostles, as, we, as we've been studying, we long, we long to look up into heaven and see the ascended Jesus and somehow find ourselves there. We desire to cross the great horizon, clouds behind and life secure. And Father, we do know that the calm will be the better for the trials that we've endured here. But Father, we have not been left hopeless. We have an anchor that holds us here and now, that allows us to see the trials and the pain and the 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 failed uh, battle with temptation as not things that are going to take our souls 
out of your grasp, but things that actually root us down deeper into them. They help remind us of the, the promises that even though our sin is great, his mercy is more. That where there is sin, grace superabounds. That where sin and darkness reign, Jesus reigns stronger and more supreme. So, Father, we have much work to do. We have people to reach, and we have the good news to preach. So, Father, fit our hearts for this task, Father, for they feel unfit. Give us courage, Father, for we seem so faithless. Father, even as we approach a pretty difficult text tonight, Father, may, they be, may there be boldness to be able to proclaim the gospel and even, in one sense, more boldness to hear it. That you would allow it to run to the deepest part of our heart, for it is in the deepest and darkest part of our heart that the resurrection would shine the brightest. Father, we ask all of these things because we believe that there's a promise out there that anyone who turns from their sin to the good news of all that Jesus has done will have everlasting life. And we believe that there are many, many in our neighborhoods, many in this city, many on the east side that you have called us to reach with the gospel. So Father, press the gospel deep in our hearts tonight and press it deeper into our communities this week. Father, I pray for Dublin uh, and Berean Baptist Church, John Hutchison Jr., um, excuse me, Matt Vanderworker. I pray that you would give Matt the courage and the boldness to proclaim the gospel. Father, I pray that you would allow the people there at Berean Bible Church to, to hear it and to take it to, to their friends and to their coworkers and to their neighbors. Father, give them the filling of the Spirit so that they might uh, see new waves of gospel energy throughout their community. And Father, I pray, I pray for Calvary Bible Church, even as they are already met this morning. Father, I pray for those wonderful dear brothers and sisters, many of us who have great relationships and even feel a kindred spirit with them, deep-rooted fellowship. Father, I pray that our fellowship and partnership in the gospel would bring us great joy that we would see them as those who work side by side for the sake of the gospel. Father, that's a, that's a brotherhood Father, that's worth even uh, giving our lives for, giving our energy for. Father, we, we thank you for those brothers and sisters who are doing such a great work, and we ask for fruit. Father, tonight as we go over this passage, Father, may you help us to see that we are those witnesses that you have promised long ago. We, we stand in the line of many witnesses who have been called by God to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, starting from Jerusalem, then moving to Judea and Samaria and to the other, uttermost parts of the earth. Father, we are those uttermost parts. So, Father, we have good news to proclaim to them. Thank you for this word, and we pray these things through Christ. Amen. Last week, I mentioned that it was really difficult for me to process the text. I felt like it was too simple, right? I felt like I couldn't grasp onto it because I was looking for something more. It was kind of hidden in plain sight, and I couldn't see it until about Friday of that week. It was actually a humbling moment where I was 
needed to kind of back away and take a fresh look at a very simple text where people are simply praying and committing themselves afresh to the gospel. And it was something that I was looking for, you know, a little bit more razzmatazz Christianity, something that would sell a book or make a, make a good Twitter run. And one of the reasons that uh, I was overlooking a lot of the mundane or run-of-the-mill activities of the church was I wanted to find that flashy or radical or supernatural activity that the church is famous for and acts to, the kind of secret sauce. What's going to help our church grow? What's going to make it tick? I had a hard time understanding the application of the text to, to me or to us because I wanted, I wanted the work to be bigger. I wanted it to be more than just simply, well, you know, praying and believing the gospel. Sounds too easy. Well, that was last week. I found this week to be the complete opposite. And as you can imagine in our text, we have a lot of razzmatazz in this particular text. There's a lot of fireworks going off here in Acts 2 as we shift to a new chapter. The story is way more radical and flashy than I actually want. It's too much. Can we just find something a little bit more simple this week? There's a great wind. There's a lot of individual fire. There's people speaking in same and different languages all at the same time. As I dug into this passage, I had a hard time understanding the application of this text to me or to us because I saw God's work in the church at this time to be too big. It's too much. Give me applications like, you know, just simply praying and waiting and being committed to the gospel. I can do that. I can manage that. Well, I don't know about you, but I've never really come to church, and I've never whipped up something like a tornado or a monsoon. I've often come to church only to find out that I have a very hard time trying to speak my own language. English is hard enough to speak, much less somebody else's language. So how am I supposed to do this kind of work? I've never stirred up a monsoon on the inside. And I had the opportunity to substitute for three Spanish classes this week, and I soon learned I do not feel like I have the gift of tongues. It's amazing to me that we can see this kind of great chasm in Christian activity so early on in the life of the church. Because the reality is, if I'm being honest with you, our week-to-week work, our day-to-day work in Christianity seems pretty powerless. Seems pretty run-of-the-mill. And when I look at God and when I think about all that he has done from the start of creation throughout epochs of time and all that he's done for us in salvation, I can't help but think that God's work is really powerful. God is the one who is often achieving, and I feel like I'm not doing a whole lot. It's amazing, too, to see that this is actually true. God does a lot of powerful work, and our work, though, yes, it seems relatively powerless, God infuses it with his great power. So there's a lot of hope. But the reality is, it's amazing to me how much of the Christian work that we have been called to do is actually quite passive in the, se- in the sense of God has called us to the work of trusting in his work or resting in his promise or hearing his word. We are often the ones who are receiving. He's the one doing the work, and our work is simply to trust in his work, 
to passively receive his work. Now, certainly I would argue that there are many active things for us to be doing, but in terms of priority, what comes first, I would argue that actually we're pretty passive in our understanding of the Christian work and that our activeness flows out of first a, a, a really big receiving. So in other words, we rest, we trust, we believe, and from that flow many works of righteousness, even as we read in Ephesians 2. God has done all these wonderful things, and God has given us all of his grace, and he has prepared beforehand good works that we should be involved in them, that we should have those too. But first, it's rooted in all that Jesus has done. In his work of powerful creation all the way to salvation, we see Jesus creating, Jesus sustaining. Even in our chapter 1 study, we saw that he chooses, he commissions, he calls, he confirms. The Father sets the times and the seasons, and he makes and he fulfills the promises. And from our passage even last week, the Spirit himself fills and empowers. It's very much like what Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. But we also see the opposite's true, that with God, all things are possible. And our passage, like many passages in the Bible, is really clear. God does the work. We receive the benefits. And that's simply what we call grace, a free gift. But let this message settle into our hearts today, that we are not the spiritual elite. We are are not the strong. We are not the competent, the movers and shakers. We are not the clean today. We are not the deserving ones. We are not the spiritual avengers armed with our powers sent to change our own humanity. That is not the current setup. And if we are tempted to think that in any way we have deserved this work or that we are plenty capable of it or are powerful enough to make things happen or smart enough to figure it all out, we must check ourselves. Or as one kid said to me, and it always sticks with me, get your mind right. We must do an audit spiritually of what's happening if we somehow think that this rides on us, either in a deservedness category or in a capability category now. Somewhere we've gotten off, if that's what we believe. But you understand that this actually fuels our dependency, which is why the early church we saw last week was very devoted to things like prayer. Of course, there were moments of this for the apostles. They felt self-sufficient at times, but there were moments of clarity where they totally felt insufficient and that Jesus was the sufficient one. And so they did wonderful humble things like pray and commit themselves afresh to the truths of the gospel. And this is, my friend, why we as a church must be constantly devoted to prayer. Remember what we talked about last week, that the reason why they prayed was because it was rooted in the promise that God would send the Holy Spirit to them. And they actually prayed, not because they wanted different circumstances or they felt things could be better, but they were rooted in a promise. Their prayers were rooted in a promise. And their activity was actually predicated on the fact that God had done the good work for them. They had good news to proclaim. This is our work that we must be committed to as well. And so we move into chapter 2, and we see the Spirit come. 
We see that promise being fulfilled. And there's a couple things I, I want to I wanna see. And Ethan, do you have the clicker? Does that work? We didn't check that, did we? We got it? Awesome. Boom. We have it here in chapter 2. We're going to divide it up, and we're going to take, take it chunk by chunk. But I think there's three major chunks in chapter 2. And we'll take this week, next week, and then the following week. Well, actually, minus the launch, whatever. The next three weeks of our series we will take to discuss these things. But the first chunk is really 1 through 13, and this discusses the what of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, what is that like? Verses 1 through 13 is a description of what happens when the Spirit pops onto the scene in full power and in full expression. The following uh, time we'll get together to discuss this series, we'll discuss the why of the Spirit. Peter then preaches a sermon uh, from verses uh, uh, 14 through 41, and Peter unpacks why the Spirit had to come. And a lot of it's uh, rooted in biblical fulfillment, uh, but also it is super packed for promise of even our mission today, the hope of the nations, uh, and so much more. We'll discuss that. But then finally we'll discuss in verses 42 through 47 the results of the Spirit, or we could say it's the first expression of the fruits of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes into the life of the church in power, what's the result? What is that moment like? What, is it, what are we left with? And so we jump into our passage today, and we're going to discuss the what of the Spirit. And I'll be honest, there's a lot here, and it's very tricky, and it's not as easy as it seems, and there's a lot of People who disagree with probably how I'll present it, and I'll probably look at them and disagree, but I think there are a couple main points that we can draw out that are significant as to why we have this description of the Spirit coming for us. The term Pentecost, let me see if I have a, oh, we don't have a thing here, but the term Pentecost really means 50th. So in our passage today, when the day of Pentecost arrived, arrived that word Pentecost means 50th. The New Testament name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks. So it's a, it's a thing that's already on the Jewish calendar. If you walk up to any practicing Jew today and talk about Pentecost, they'll have an exactly, uh, exactly an idea of what you're, what you're understanding. We're kind of the new ones to the game here. Uh, but they would already have this fixed in their calendar. In fact, it's already on the, the Protestant church's liturgical calendar, the idea of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. But it's really the 50th day after Passover. And in later Jewish tradition, the Pentecost would also come to celebrate the, the day of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So there's a lot of significance to this particular day. But again, Pentecost isn't something that kind of was, was new. Pentecost was old, and yet what was happening on the day of Pentecost was brand new. See, in the Feast of Weeks or, or Pentecost, an offering of first fruits of the year's harvest was made. And Paul picks up on this language. There's really a lot of significance to the timing of, of this. Uh, but Paul picks up on the, 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 the benefit of the Spirit and calls the Spirit the first fruits or the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it. So Paul even sees the idea of the Spirit's coming as this kind of fulfillment of the, fir as the, of the Feast of Weeks. There was a first fruits, and the Spirit is now the ultimate fulfillment of this sacrifice of first fruits given to us as a guarantee. 
Uh, Ephesians 1, this is what Paul says, In him, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the first fruits or the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And notice they were celebrating this Pentecost and they were all in one place. It could be in the same upper room. We don't, we don't really know. In fact, there's some people who think that uh, even when Jesus was around before he was crucified, they were gathered in the upper room for the Last Supper and then the apostles came back to the upper room for last week's text when they were praying together and that this is the same exact room that they were found to be in when the Spirit came. That's, that's hearsay. We don't really know. But the point is, the early church gathered a lot, and they waited a lot, and they prayed a lot. That's the significance here. And they were constantly devoted in, in prayer. But I can't help but understand and, and see the, the, the significance of this timing. Because the reality is, God often accomplishes his active work through the passive, ordinary work of the church. As these people are constantly giving themselves to the common means of praying, God comes and moves in a spiritual way. That should not play as insignificant to us. That when the church was found to be trusting and resting in the promises of God, as they were praying and waiting for him, God came through in a powerful way. That is hugely significant for us, which is why even every week, we gather in ways that seem very ordinary, and they seem very mundane. That's because we believe that God works through ordinary means in supernatural ways. We would believe that, and he moves and shakes at his whim, but we see the ordinary rhythms of the Christian life as significant for us. So we should take a lot of courage in the fact that they were all gathered in one place, probably taking off where, they left, where we left them in, in Acts 1, praying and waiting for the Spirit, doing every, every day and every week common things, and all of a sudden we see God move. And the reason I know this is because Acts 1 and Acts 2 actually finish the exact same way. So you kind of have a, an ordinary means of grace sandwich, if you will. Acts 1, they end with praying and committing themselves to the gospel. We'll go to Acts 2.42. Look, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. You see, so they, the plane kind of took off in prayer and in fellowship with one another. The Spirit comes, but then the plane lands in fellowship and in prayer and commitment to the gospel. You see that? So it didn't break their ordinary rhythm. It was part of their ordinary rhythm, and they saw God work in extraordinary ways. We should take a lot of courage because a lot of what we do is fairly mundane. Seems week to week. Seems we set up and we tear down and we do it all together and we prepare a sermon on Sunday only to begin a new one on Monday and the rhythms keep going. But we actually believe that these ordinary means are part of God's way of carrying out his extraordinary promises here in this community. Let that be a huge encouragement for us. Let us continue to work and pray in this way. Let's talk about a couple things. So there's two, there's two big things going on in Acts 2 that I want us to understand. And again, this is not particularly easy. But I want you to dial in, listen a little bit. Quinton, do we got the air flowing a little, little, little hot? This is, this is time for, for good old air conditioning. Let's get our own wind. Let's get our own tempest blowing in here. 
We'll need, we'll need something going. But there's two things I want to see that are happening in this text. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is the baptism of the Spirit. And the second thing I want us to see is the filling of the Spirit, okay? And again, as, even as you're hearing these things, you're probably wondering, what are those, right? I don't know if I've ever heard an explanation of this, or if I have, I'm not sure I could articulate this. And again, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of opinions, and I, I want to be very sensitive, and I want to try to couch things in, way that, in ways that are understandable. So I'm going to try to be very, very simple. But you might hear something new. You might hear something maybe even contrary to what you've always heard, and that's okay. I want you to look in this and, and take this in afresh and see what Scripture has to say uh, and, and do this study with me, even as, I, even as I lead the study. I want you to do this study with me together. But let's talk about the baptism of the Spirit. If you remember, in chapter 1, Jesus told us that the Spirit would come. He says, wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. He says this in Acts 1, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in chapter 1, God promises to pour out his Spirit, and that the church will be baptized or submerged in the Spirit. And I want us to see early on that there's actually a difference between this language here and the language that we see actually in Acts 2 presented in our text. So Jesus promises the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that certainly happens in Acts 2. But in Acts 2, verse uh, verse 4, you see that they're actually filled with the Holy Spirit. So you have to kind of backtrack this promise into this moment. Jesus promises that the Father will baptize the church, and then what we have in verse 4 of chapter 2 is that the Spirit filled believers. And I want us to see that actually both are happening. All right, does that, that make sense? Is that clear as mud? Both the baptism of the Spirit from the promise, that's happening, and a filling of the Spirit is happening as well. And we need to talk about both of those things. You see, what God was promising in Acts 1 is the promise of a new age, a new dawn in salvation history a holistic change in how things were running and operating. If you will, because of the picture of baptism, it's a kind of dying and rising. Something was brand new. And this really is the breaking point between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is that brand new age in salvation history where you can mark off new. This is what God was trying to do for the people and what was pronounced even as early as Ezekiel 36. In Jeremiah 34, this was the promise of the new spirit being given to us, of hearts that are transformed, that are not rock solid, but hearts of flesh, being able to actually obey God from our hearts. This is that new time. This is the time of the new covenant. See, baptism of the spirit is God's one-time gift of the spirit for believers, wherein the spirit dwells in, seals, fills, and empowers believers for the ongoing work of Jesus's heavenly ministry. I'll read that again. Baptism of the Spirit is God's one-time gift of the Spirit for believers, wherein the, the Spirit dwells in, seals, fills, and empowers believers for the ongoing work of Jesus' heavenly ministry. You see, this gift of the Spirit provides a bridge. It's a bridge of several things, really. It's the bridge between the ages. 
It's the bridge between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In between is the work of the Spirit that God has left us here with. But it's also, he, the Spirit, he is also the bridge between Jesus' present earthly work, or his past earthly work, and his present heavenly work. Do you remember the first week we talked about Acts? We, we talked about Jesus' work is ongoing. It's just from a different location. Jesus was at work on earth during his incarnational years here, but his ascension means that he's still at work. He's just at work in heaven, and he sent the Spirit as that bridge between the two, between the connection of his earthly ministry and his heavenly ministry. The Spirit is here, and remember from John's testimony, the Spirit is the one who will remind us of all things that Jesus has done and said, but also the Spirit is the one who will clarify all that Jesus has done and said in the future. So there's a past and there's a present moment here, and the link is the Spirit himself who guides this work. And the baptism of the Spirit is that one-time moment where God himself poured out the Spirit for this present moment. But just as Jesus was given one time and his work is ongoingly and individually signed and sealed to us in our conversions, so the Spirit was poured out one time and is individually and ongoingly signed and sealed to us in our conversions. It's a mouthful. But basically, just as Jesus was given to us in a one-time moment with, of course, ongoing ramifications, so the Spirit was given to the church at one time, and yet the Spirit is still here with ongoing ramifications. We should see the baptism of the Spirit as this very important time in salvation history, in the church's history, where something began. Something came. Something was brand new. And certainly it has ongoing effects. We still believe that the Spirit is here with us. We actually believe that each one of us individually experienced the baptism of the Spirit. That only happens in connection with the actual moment where the Spirit was poured out on those apostles in Acts 2. Just like we would say, we all believe that we have been killed and resurrected in the, in the life of Christ. We all believe that that actually happens here and now but it's only connected to Jesus' actual death and resurrection for us. It's the same way. We believe that we have been baptized, killed, and made alive in the Spirit. And it's tricky. It's really tricky. Because you ask, well, when does that happen for each of us as people? When, when do we get baptized with the Spirit? And you could just as easily say, well, 2,000 years ago in Acts 2. We could say certainly that that's that's not a bad answer, but we do believe that the Spirit is poured out on us one time at the beginning of our conversion. And you might say, well, when does that happen? What you know, on the conversion timeline, when are we baptized with the Spirit? And I would say to you, good luck. I have no idea. Because the reality is conversion is actually fairly messy. We don't often have a clear picture as to what happens when? We believe that there are components, things like faith and regeneration and repentance. We, we believe those things are components to what happens, but the timing of it, when, when do you have the Spirit? Is, is it before you ever hear the Word? Can you have the Spirit without ever understanding the Word? Or do you have the Spirit, understand the Word, make a decision of faith, and then get the Spirit? Wait, when, do you, when do you get the Spirit? What happens when? And reality is we really don't know truthfully when it all happens. I mean, think about your own conversion experience. Could you be sure when you had 
pinpointed faith and when the Spirit was with you and when the Spirit was, or, or was, when you didn't have the Spirit, and all of a sudden when you did have the Spirit, can you, do you know those exact moments? The reality is we, we really don't. And the, the way Scripture talks about it is also really tricky. It doesn't really help us out. And actually, the way that the Bible talks about conversion is actually just through the picture of baptism itself. They constantly are talking about their baptism. Paul ends up talking about his baptism a lot. He had a whole conversion experience, and yet he continued to talk about that moment when he was baptized into Christ. He actually encouraged the believers, remember your baptism when you were actually buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, which we would say is also the same moment when the Spirit comes upon us at that moment. When we have faith and we trust Christ and we are converted, we say we have been killed in Christ and raised to new life, and we would say that the Spirit's work is dynamically a part of that, where we have been given the Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out to us in that moment. You want a clear picture of this, jump to the end of Acts 2, and then we'll go to Acts 10. Look what he says at the end of Acts 2, the fellowship of the believers. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, excuse me, um, Verse go to, go to uh, verse 37. So Peter's going to preach a sermon about why the Spirit came. And in verse 37, he says, now when they heard that sermon, they were cut to the heart. And he, sa- and, and he said, uh, and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Well, repent and be baptized, every once of you, one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So the question is, when they were cut to the heart, was that a moment of conversion? Did they have the Spirit? Because don't you have to have the Spirit to be cut to the heart? Can the Word of God work in a heart that's not truly filled with the Spirit, it's, it's really tricky. But they were cut to the heart, and Peter says, repent and be baptized, and then you're going to receive the Spirit. Then you'll have your sins forgiven once you do that. All right, well, that's, that's one equation. Go with me to Acts 10, where Peter preaches another sermon, and different things happen here to the Gentiles. You go to verse 44. Peter preaches another sermon to the Gentiles. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them and speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit already, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they asked him to remain some days. So you see, they already had the Spirit, which triggered them hearing the word, which then Peter said, well, they already have the Spirit, so they should be baptized. And it's like, well, when does all of this stuff happen? And the reality is, it's like, well, I don't know. But we know it does happen. We believe it does happen. There are these one-time events that that God gives to us where, like, just like the incarnation of Christ, this giving of the Spirit, these one-time events that are actually proclaimed to us in our conversion experience. We could even say even proclaimed in our own baptisms. So we share in Christ's actual death and his resurrection, and that is signed and sealed to us in our baptism. It unites us to him at that moment, but we also share in the baptism of the Spirit in that moment as well. 
The Spirit is poured out on us as we believe in all that Christ has done for us. It's a tricky moment when that all lines up, but in Acts we see that these one-time events are happening and people receive the word and they're baptized and they're filled with the Spirit. You say, all this is really confusing. What's the point? (laughs) It's a great question. The point is this. Really, nowhere in Scripture are believers called to pursue the baptism of the Spirit. You may have even heard that that's something we we ought to be doing, that the baptism of the Spirit is something we should be pursuing. It's something special. It's something, it's the extra sauce. It's the secret sauce to the Christian Christian life. You know, there's this normal Christianity, and then there's all of a sudden you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that's the moment where everything gets awesome. And the reality is, the baptism of the Spirit already happened in Acts 2, but it also happens for us at the moment of conversion. And the reality is, in that moment, we've been given everything we need. There is no extra secret sauce. There is no extra benefit. The baptism of the Spirit, having all of the Spirit poured out on us, being submerged in the Spirit, that's all that we need. So we don't need to pursue any other sort of higher level of Christian understanding or Christian experience. A lot of times we do. We even read Acts 2 and we we kind of long for something a little bit extra special. When in reality, just being submerged and really the, the Spirit coming to us and fully engulfing Himself in us as well, that's all we need. We have the presence of God among us. See, the baptism of the Spirit unites us to Christ. It unites us to the Spirit. And the amazing thing is, it unites us to one another. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ's body. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. We see this moment, actually, you had to no way, there's, there's no way in my mind that Paul was not thinking about Acts 2 when he wrote this. All of us were made to be baptized into the Spirit. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. And it all happened to us at that moment in Acts 2, but also in our personal conversions. So there's the baptism of the Spirit, and there's also this idea of the filling with the Spirit, which we have there in verse 4. As I already mentioned, There is the Spirit poured out on us, and that would be like the mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house. And even that that picture is helpful for understanding the pouring out of the Spirit. He is poured out, and he fills it. He fills the entire room corporately. But also, he indwells each person individually through this picture of individual fires. And by the way, just just for a little clarity, it's, it's often presented in terms of pictures here. So just like in Jesus' baptism, you have the Spirit descending like a dove, same way it is here. You have something like a great wind. It's as of it's actu- an actual wind or a monsoon. It's like, a dis- it's like the best description we have for it. It's something else, but it's like that. Or it's like individual fires resting on people. There's kind of this moment of otherliness that we're just trying to grasp pictures, and it was kind of like this. This was what's kind of going on here. But you have this corporate of a, of a filling. This is for everybody. This is, the, this is the whole church. But also this individuality here, it rests on each one. The Spirit rests on each one. So you have this filling, this individual filling. 
So unlike the baptism with the Spirit, the filling with the Spirit is an ongoing experience that we have. And though the Spirit never ceases to fill us, again, because of the baptism of the Spirit, there are pronounced moments of filling. The filling of the Spirit is this objective reality in our life because of the baptism of the Spirit. It's also a subjective experience as we minister here on earth. You understand that? So we can say here today, though I might not feel very special, and I might feel very fleshly at times, that I am filled with the Spirit. Well, how do I know? It's because the Spirit has been poured out on me through baptism of the Spirit. And again, that happened 2,000 years ago in Acts, but it also happened in my own conversion. I myself have been poured onto by the Spirit, engulfed in Him. All of me is in Him, and all of Him is in me. We have been engulfed in that Spirit. But yet, I know functionally there are times where I am filled with the Spirit for certain tasks. And we have this level of filling, and it's very subjective. And at times you really feel it, and other times you feel it not at all. But all of these moments are given to us for the sake of this ongoing ministry that Jesus has. John MacArthur said it really just the best. I was like, dude, I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing your line here. MacArthur says, the baptism with the Spirit grants the power that the filling of the Spirit unleashes. The baptism with the Spirit grants the power that the filling with the Spirit unleashes. I think that's super helpful in terms of distinguishing what's going on. This is why you have commands in the New Testament to be filled with the Spirit or to walk in the Spirit or to keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul's encouraging us with is he's actually pointing us back to the baptism of the Spirit and said, because of that reality, continue to pursue what the Spirit is doing with you. If the Spirit hasn't kind of woken you up, you go, you go and see what the Spirit's up to. Spirit, what have you done for me? Remind me yet again of all that you are and all that you've done for, for us in Christ. Remind me of, of the good news of Jesus. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Well, you might ask, well, why were they filled with the Spirit at, at this moment? Well, it couldn't be any more clear, and we'll certainly pick up on this next week uh, as Peter gives the, the why moment, but it's, wor- it's worth mentioning here. The reason they are filled with the Spirit in verse 4 here, they were, verse 4, they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And go down to verse uh, 12. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some were mocking. Excuse me, go to, uh, where's that one verse? Uh, verse, uh, oh man, where is it? 13? No. The works of God. Where is that? Oh, yeah, no, verse 11. I'm sorry. Verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language and tugs the mighty works of God. You see, what, see what's happening here? There's, there's these all tongues and all nations represented. And what are they talking about in the all tongues? They're talking about the mighty works of God. So the Spirit filled them. They were poured out with the Spirit, but then they were also especially filled in this moment filled with tongues that were not their own, speaking in languages of other people in their known tongues. And what they were speaking was the mighty works of God. The Spirit filled them for this very special moment. And really, this was the fulfillment for them of Acts 1-8. 
and you will be my witnesses. Remember, it's not a, it's not a, you might be my witnesses. When God said you will be my witnesses, he literally meant you will, whether you like it or not. I'm going to give you languages that you don't even understand. And you will be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, but also Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And that couldn't be more articulated and fulfilled here than when these tongues actually come alive and people from all walks of life are hearing the mighty works of God being proclaimed. So the Spirit was extraordinarily given so that ordinary people might accomplish God's extraordinary work. And that's really the point of this can talk about all the theological nuances sure that's fine but what we see at the end here is god making a promise you will be my witnesses and fulfilling that promise and giving us the spirit not leaving us alone but actually filling us all the way up and giving us all of himself and saying you will be my witnesses and actually making it happen filling us for that work and again, you're, you're going to be tempted to think that this is somehow not for us because it doesn't feel as special. That maybe the filling of the Spirit isn't as full for us in these days. And we can argue that point, and I'll be happy to argue with you back and forth because there's a lot of crazy things that are happening in other parts of the world, not, not just in our own. So what we see is not always the truth. But the reality is, we have been given all of the Spirit. We've been given all of the promises and the reality is still true. The Spirit has been given to us, even in an extraordinary way in Acts 2, but also think about your conversion. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, don't forget the miraculous thing that happened to you. And God poured out His Spirit to you in an extraordinary way. So the Spirit was extraordinarily given to you so that ordinary people like you and me might accomplish God's extraordinary work. That's the reality. The Spirit in you, and this is not just for the apostles in this day. Listen to me. The Spirit in you signifies and seals the reality to you that you are clean. That Jesus is yours. That you are Jesus's. That your eternal inheritance is secure. That your treasure is in heaven. And that you are God's beloved child. Those promises are yours. It, the Spirit of God is si like signifying those things, but it also, it's a seal to you. It's a rubber stamp of all of God's promises right onto your heart. That all the promises of God in Jesus are rubber stamped into your heart by the presence of the Spirit. And that's an eternal security for you. It's an eternal anchor of your soul. But also, don't forget that God, because of the Spirit, God's ordinary means to accomplish His ordinary work is you. Each of you. you you've been sealed with the Spirit, so there's so much for you individually. But also, that propels us out corporately. That pr propels us out missionally speaking. This text here is our story. That baptism of the Spirit, that was our baptism of the Spirit. And that filling of the Spirit, though it has different expressions and it certainly is a different time, that is, that is our filling. We have that as well. I was so reminded of this. I, 
I was so reminded, this is like, it was a perfect text for this week. Some of you know, I had this amazing opportunity to share the gospel with this 12-year-old boy and, and his mom. Um, and I, I hope they come for the launch, so you can, you can pray. Um, but literally, I was given this connection, and um, I won't share too much, but there's, there's a reason, not the gospel, that I was given this connection, and I was kind of called in, hey, can, can you help? Um, and so I've been able to, to chat a lot with this, with this 12-year-old, and he's, he's just the coolest kid ever. Um, but I've, I've been able to just chat with him about life and a lot of things that he's, he's processing and, and wrestling with. But the dude has just unbelievable questions about God. I mean, almost like when I first met him, it was like, it was like the spirit, I, like I, the spirit is drawing you, dude. Like, like I, I just need to, I, I need to not micromanage this at all. Just let the spirit do what the spirit's already clearly been doing in this kid. It's just, it's been, it's been amazing for, for me to see. But I, I'm having these conversations, and all I'm doing is I'm reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with them. Our, that's the curriculum our, our kids are using back there. Very simple, but it's, but it's also very uh, Christ-centered. Every story whispers his name is, the, is kind of the tagline for, the, for that Bible. And I'm reading, and I'm just letting him ask questions. I mean, anything he wants. I mean, we're going through, like, Abraham offering Isaac. I'm like, what questions do you have about this dad who, like, promised a son, but then God asked him to sacrifice his son? Do you have any questions about that? Like, just crazy stuff like that. They're like, oh, stink. Like, this is, this is where seminary really comes into play on those kind of questions, like big deal stuff. Um, but I'm sitting there, and I'm just, I'm just, we're talking about Jesus, and it's amazing, his, his little childlike faith. He's like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, God's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. So if God's big enough to create you, he's big enough to take something away, isn't he? Like, yeah, no, that's, that's powerful. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he's like, yeah, it's just really cool to see Abraham's faith because— you know, he didn't go about it the right way. I was, you know, reading in the other Bible, and it said, like, you know, he went, he went with his, his other handmaid. So it's amazing that God even allowed him to do it. I'm like, yeah, dude, that's fantastic. And his mom's sitting right there. And we're, we're having these conversations about gospel. And these, these people know nothing about church. Like, they've never been church. So these stories are brand, brand new. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm just saying, like, I didn't ask for this. I didn't make this connection happen. I didn't give this kid any sort of amounts of understanding or childlike faith. This is what God is doing. This is something I, I can't think about, like, the eternal, like, plan of all time. Like, God is at work for this very moment, and he's simply arranged me. And it's a miracle that I'm even, like, in his living room. But the fact that, like, now I have to actually open my mouth and say, dude, you are on the precipice of eternity in a good way. Like, you understand, like, this Jesus saved your soul. The thing that you're looking for, like, mom, the thing, the thing that you're hungry for, the thing that you're looking for, do you understand this miraculous moment here? And it's, I'm like, I'm reading a, a Bible, a little kid's Bible. Like, that's what we're going after here. And it's just me. I don't have any, like, great reasons to be there. I don't have great answers for this kid. But you know what? It's like, you know what they need to hear? That there's good news today. Because all they've heard is bad news. And all that that kid has faced is bad news. And he's 12, and he's saying, there's a lot of bad news, isn't there? He's like, well, that's what's keeping me up at night. And I'm like, well, I think God may have called me here to actually share. There is, there, is, there is good news. There is forgiveness of all your sin. There is peace with God. There is actually freedom in this life. You want to hear about it? And I'm like, again, like that's, it's like simple stuff like that. And I'm just like, I'm reading this text. And I'm like, that's not a rushing wind. And that's not like fire being lighted on my head. But it's pretty, it's pretty close. It's a miracle. 
And I'm like, I'm just sitting there and I'm kind of shaking and I'm like, this is amazing. I didn't, I didn't do anything for this and that God has orchestrated this. So I'm, ask, I'm, asking, I'm asking you, and again, nothing has to feel like that super darkly spiritual. That's not what I'm talking about. But there are people in your life who just have never heard good news like this. And God has put you in that position to be able to, and it takes, it takes boldness, it takes courage, trust me. Nothing is, nothing is harder for me than to look at this 12-year-old boy and say, like with a trembling lip, like, dude, Jesus died for your sins. Like, it just feels like in this moment, that's like, that is like, challenging Satan at that moment because they can just feel that like the darkness and to say that courageously is like this could go very south very quickly and this mom could kick me out of this house right now like like that's that's the level that's where it's like Jesus loves you you know it's it's like I know what that could cost me but the reality is it's like and she hears it and she's like yeah that's right that's right so I'm, I'm wondering about you I'm wondering about us I'm wondering about us collectively who are these people that God is going to draw to the launch next week? Who are these people that God is, is bringing in here? Okay, well, the baptism of the Spirit means a lot for us personally, but also means a lot for us corporately. And we are praying that the Spirit, because he has filled us, would fill us afresh and fill us anew to speak the gospel with clarity, or even with fumbling lips, because he'll use that too, as Peter will tell us a little bit later on. So my friends, I'm, I'm asking you, do you, do you really believe that you are God's chosen, spirit-filled instrument for his ongoing, extraordinary work here in this community? Because that's the good news of the gospel. The spirit in you s- says amazing things about your eternity, but it also says amazing, amazing things about how you'll speak the gospel this week. And I pray that your soul will be set free to be able to speak it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Spirit, even as we sing often. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and for leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Father, our life is yours, and we place our life into your hands. Not that we need to do that, but spiritually speaking, we we posture ourselves in a way that says, take our lives and let them be consecrated whole to thee. Take our moments and our days, let them be filled with unending praise because of what you've done. So Father, we want our souls to be still. And we want all the trials of this life to to push us towards an understanding of the cross and the resurrection and may the, the fruit of that, the, the witness of that, actually bring hope to our community. Father, we thank you for this table that you have presented for us, that you have given to us, not because we've earned it this week, but it's a free grace by your hand wherein, wherein you remind us of your promises. So Father, may it taste sweet to us. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. Condition Jesus has bled and there.
perfect salvation.